cancer. It wouldn't be elbow cancer anyway, huh? Kill brain cells. Oh. It what? It's a neurotoxin. It does what? Kill brain cells. Oh. <laughs> I know that was recorded for Cody's benefit. <laughs> Let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for our church family, not just in this place, but that has stretched out before us for centuries. Thank you for this beautiful weather, and just thank you for your love that is new every day. We give all this to you in Jesus' name. Be blessed, Lord. Amen. I do wonder sometimes... Uh, about the people listening to this, because uh, we get these up as like podcasts and stuff. And how many people listening to this are like, that is the weirdest church family ever. <laughs> that, that makes, I, I, I love it. That doesn't bother me at all. Alright. Um, I need to click on my, my remote thing here. Alright, so we're, we've been going through centuries of church. It doesn't matter. Well, that's tacky. Um, <laughs> Going through, again, podcast. Uh, we, we've been going through centuries of church history, and we're in the middle of the 16th century now. And we're talking about the Counter-Reformation. And uh, you can make an argument as to, uh, to what the Counter-Reformation actually includes. You know, does it really include all this? But there's a large move of the Catholic Church to improve itself, to reform itself, and to have a specific reaction against what the, the Protestants are doing at this time. So, really all this counts as part of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, including even how we're going to end this week. So we've got to go just a little bit more into next week with the Counter-Reformation. But, what I ended last week with, if you'll remember, was 1549, religion actually finally comes to the Church of England, right? Because it hasn't really up to this point. Church of England just became the Church of England. Why? So actually, so he could off his wives, you know, so he could get rid of wives and get more. So King Henry could do what he wanted to do. And he kind of, even though he had originally been the defender of the faith for Catholicism, this great poster child of being a Catholic king, he wanted to have his own English Catholic church. But finally in 1549, we're going to actually get some moral center infused into this. And you can thank Carlos V and the Schmalkaldic League. Now, there are two kinds of people sitting in this classroom right now. Guaranteed. They're going to be the kind of people who sit there and go, Oh, the Schmalkaldic League. That's a funky name. I remember those guys. I remember when we talked about that. That's not, a, that's not a word I forget very easily. And the rest of you are going, Never heard that before in my life. So if you remember when we talked about the Schmalkaldic League, what that is is it's a bunch of German Lutheran princes that had met in the town of Schmalkalden, that's the Schmalkaldic League, back in 1531, to pull all their little princedoms together to defend one another against the Catholic forces of Emperor Carlos V, who's the head of the Holy Roman Empire, which is based in, because it's the Holy Roman Empire, it's based in? Germany. Germany, right. So you've got the Spanish emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which has nothing to do with Rome, sitting in Germany. It just gets funky, all right? Does it, so it's not holy, it's not Roman. And it's not much of an empire. It's not an empire. Yeah, but other than that, okay. if you think that history is getting weird, it's just going to keep doing this up through like World War One, 
once you get to World War One, you realize it's basically just cousins all fighting each other. It just it's funky. But anyway, you've got uh, the Schmalkaldic League that has, that has banded together for the last twenty years to to kind of mutually support and, and defend one another. And that's kind of important for a bunch of different reasons, not the least of which is that the Reformation, just in, in, this, in the span of a couple of decades, has moved from being a couple of Catholic priests that say, hey, have you actually read this Bible? Maybe we should do this better. And into not even just a, a, a spiritual reform movement, but a socio-political movement. To be a Protestant isn't just, I have spiritual issues with Roman Catholicism. To be a Protestant is, I live over here. We have a different way of doing politics, a different way of living. We're supporting each other with swords and pointy things. All right. So, 1546, 1547, Carlos fights these German princes in what is known as the Schmalkaldic War. I keep using this word because it, the Germans actually know this. It's, it, it's just kind of a big thing for them, and, and nobody in America has ever heard of the Schmalkaldic League. But it's basically Spanish troops invading German soil at the orders of the Roman Empire. It's... it's Weird goofiness. But, somebody's asked something? Well, the Spanish troops are invading. No. Yep. Yes, the Spanish is invading the Roman Empire in Germany. Spanish troops, the Holy Roman Emperor is importing Spanish troops into the German Lutheran territories to try to pull them back into his Germanic Holy Roman Empire. So, you have, you have Don Fernando in Germany, because you get a lot of Don Fernandos in Germany, right? In Germany, defeating the defenders of Johann Friedrich in Saxony to pull them all together. Part of that is because even though they're like, we're a Schmalkaldic League, we're going to support one another, they couldn't do it at all. I mean, they, couldn't, they wouldn't communicate with one another. They get all sorts of petty offenses where they get frustrated with one another. They wouldn't even agree with who's in charge. Of, of the Schmalkaldic League. So they, they lost pretty pretty soundly. And poor Johann Friedrich over here has to sign what's called the Capitulation of Wittenberg, where he has to admit total defeat. He's like, nope, we totally give up. We, we dropped the ball. We screwed up everything. Now what's interesting is, Carlos says, I'm going to take a slightly different tack. He decrees what is called the Augsburg Interim, which allowed some concessions uh, to, to let the Protestants do some of their Protestant weirdness to bring them back into Catholicism gradually. He's like, I keep trying to just say, smack, you're a Catholic. Smack, you're a Catholic. And, 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 and that doesn't seem to be working. Because I smack them and they go, Lutheran? I'm like, no, smack, you're a Catholic. And they go, Lutheran? So I got an idea. I'll let them be sort of Lutheran as long as they keep coming back to, to Catholic Church give money to the Catholic Church, act more Catholic, I'll let them, I'll let them be that. that. That's fair. That'll work. Now what's interesting though is, technically, that changes the Catholic Church more than it changes the Protestant churches. Because now, the Catholic Church is officially opening its doors to allow Protestant practices. Because it's like, oh, we want to help them be more Catholic, so we will change a little bit for them. That's not... Not like saying Catholic churches all around are going to do things, but you guys get to be Catholic and yet do your funky things. So, for instance, you, Protestant clergy, you get to marry. Catholic clergy doesn't get to marry. You guys do. Protestant laity, you're allowed to drink the wine as well as eating the bread. Because remember, up 
to this point in the Catholic Church, only the priests get to drink the wine because they're the only ones that are holy. You guys aren't. So, yeah, we'll get to do that. You get to do that. We will accept this into Catholic churches in the Schmalkaldic region so that you guys can feel like you're doing your Protestant weirdnesses. Now, they still feel like they're under the, the Catholic boot because they're like, no, we still have to swear fealty to Rome, we still have to promise to obey, we still have to accept the sacraments. We as Protestants still have to say, okay, if you want to go to heaven, you absolutely have to do communion in a Catholic church. And you need to keep doing it so that you can keep heaven. Yes, absolutely need to baptize an infant, whether we wanted to baptize them as infants or not. Yes, we absolutely need to fill in the blank. There's seven sacraments. You need to do all of them and you need to do them appropriately, otherwise they don't count toward you getting to go to heaven. All of which, the Protestants would have said, no, we disagree with that. We fundamentally disagree with that. If I, if I said, tell you what, we're going we're gonna to be Catholic-friendly in this church, you can take communion, you can even take it the way you've always taken it. You just have to admit that you have to do it that way, or else you won't remain saved. And that when, the moment that you eat the bread and drink the wine, you need to make sure in your mind you're saying, this is physically Jesus Christ being re-sacrificed for my sins. Would you feel comfortable in that, in that arrangement? Probably not so much. Um, so these guys were uncomfortable. But still, it's kind of a big deal. The Catholic Church is actually shifting its polity, if not its own personal doctrine. Right? Okay. Now, because of the small call to war, there were a lot of German ministers who said, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm, this, I'm not staying here. This, is, this used to be safe, but this isn't safe anymore. I, I can't be a pastor under this. It's too, I can't preach truth. So they need to leave. They either literally forced out or they left themselves. One of those ministers was a guy named Martin Bootser, and there's a couple different ways that you can spell his name. In England, they always do it. Let's see. Bootser in, in German. This is a nice guy. This is a guy who had worked his entire ministry to try to help everybody just get along. Can't we all just get along? Can't we just play in the playground nicely with one another? Back at the beginning of the Reformation, he had tried so hard to mediate between Martin Luther and Ulrich Swingley. He kept writing letters back and forth going, guys, 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 you don't disagree that much. And it's really important that we, if we're going to do some sort of Reformation, we do this together. Let's, let's do this together. Ulrich? I don't know. Martin? He's a heretic. Oh, gosh. It's like, please. He went to all the meetings. He went to any time that they'd get everybody together to try to work things out. It was Martin that was like, okay, let's all try to be nice. Okay? Ulrich? Don't suggest that we run around killing people. Martin? Watch the language and stop calling people names. Jerk? See? Like that. You know, so... You think I'm being facetious? That's pretty much the way that a lot of these meetings went. I mean, this is this is the the, the, the quick version of it, but it really is Martin going, seriously, Martin, try. It's also the same guy that argued so passionately that they dialogue with the Catholic Church. He's like, you know, Erasmus is saying the Pope might buy into this. Erasmus is saying, you know, you can be a Catholic and be a reformer. Maybe we just fix the existing church. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great instead of us just sitting in basements going, truth! Wouldn't it be great if we could say truth from cathedrals? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be great if the Pope was actually reading his Bible 
and doing good things, that would be, that'd be so good. Yeah, it never happened, but we got Paul third going right now. He's at least trying, but not to be a reformer. But so Martin is trying so hard. He, he was a minister in Strasbourg, and Strasbourg is so beaten down by fighting, they're like, okay, we're withdrawing all of our support from all of our Protestant pastors. That's it. You know, we're just fine, we're Catholic, whatever. I'm just fired. I'm tired of half of our population being dead. So let's let's just move on. And so he accepts an invitation from Thomas Cranmer. I don't know if you remember him from a couple weeks ago, who would help start the Church of England with Henry. He, Thomas Cranmer said, Martin, if you're looking for a place to go, I kind of like some religion in my religion. Could you could you maybe help bring some some morality to our church here? Please help me reform my reformed church. And so he invited him to England. So 1549, Martin Bootser comes to England, and Thomas Cranmer introduces him to this new king, Henry, Henry's son, Edward VI, as this great man of the faith. This is an awesome pastor. We are going to totally listen to this guy. That's good. That's important, right? That you get introduced to the new king as, like, this is the guy who's going to help us. That's a nice resume builder. So he takes this teaching position as a professor of divinity at Cambridge and continues to preach German reform in England, which is kind of cool. He also continued to try very hard not to get embroiled in fights with people, even though his theology bucked up against the Church of England on a lot of things. People kept going, ah, ah, start a fight, start a fight, start a fight. And he's like, no, no. I love this quote. He says, we must aspire with the utmost zeal to edify as many people as we possibly can in the faith and in the love of Christ and to offend no one. It's like, I'm going to stand by my ideals. I'm going to preach truth. I had to leave Germany because I wouldn't compromise truth. But I'm going to do so with gentleness and with respect. I'm going to offend nobody by my actions. If I offend you with my theology, that's on you. If I offend you with how I share it, that's on me. Right? And by definition, if I call myself a Christian, if I call myself a Christian and I treat you like crap, if I call myself a Christian and I offend you because I get in your face or because I am obnoxious to you, that's not only on me, that's on Christ then. Because I, I, I called myself a Christian and then I took that into that argument. So he's like, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm trying very hard just to share truth. I like Martin. Martin's another one of these like white hat guys where you go, thank you, Martin. Thank you for trying to be a class act in a world that doesn't have a lot of class acts at this particular moment. Anyway, he did all he could to infuse the Church of England with this sense of moral center. Started off with a king's corruption, and he's like, no, can we, can we bring some morality into all this kind of stuff? So, same year, 1549, Cranmer publishes the Book of Common Prayer in England, which is a liturgy for the Church of England in English. How important is that? How big is that? Why? I agree. It's, it's in a language So why was the Catholic Church all writing stuff in Latin? Why is the Catholic Church still writing stuff in Latin? Okay. Okay, let's do both of those. Yes. So it's God's language so people don't understand it. What were you going to say? I said yes. Yes. It's both of those. So 
it's God's language. They're like, this is the holy language. This is the language that the Romans spoke. We don't anymore in Rome speak Latin. But we did, and since the church is based in Rome, because we decided it is, uh, because the church is biblically based in Rome, and Rome used to speak Latin, God must speak in Latin. And because we've created our own little Bible a thousand, two hundred years ago with Jerome, and Jerome wrote it in Latin so that everybody could understand it. Because everybody spoke Latin twelve hundred years ago. Then it must be God's language, because that's what the Bible is written in. It's written in Latin. Now, which Caesar? We've had lots of them, yeah. But Michael said, it's also so that the people didn't understand. Why would you ever preach, teach, do things in a language so that the people didn't understand? Jerome published in Latin so that the people would understand. Yeah. So that you Exactly. So you get to be the arbiter of truth. You get to be the arbiter of these decisions. You get to control these things. You don't want your priests even reading the Bible, because then they seem to think that they can decide what truth is. You certainly don't want your lay people to understand what you're doing. Up until the Vatican II, uh, in the, was it sixties, uh, the nineteen sixties? Up until Vatican II, church services in the, in the Roman Catholic Church were all in Latin. And there were a lot of people, lay people, who were frustrated when they went to English or, you know, whatever language of, of wherever you were at. There are people who are frustrated because they're like, I don't want to know what's going on. I like going to the church and having mystery, a sense of, a sense of majesty that this is bigger than me. You go, wait, 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 wait. But the mystery and the majesty wasn't based on God's majesty. And it wasn't based on a mystery on things about God that genuinely are bigger than you understand. If that's the sense of mystery and majesty you have, booyah. You should have a sense that God is bigger than you understand. And there are things out there that you don't get. But if your sense of mystery and majesty is based on the fact that they're speaking a language you just don't know, that's about as artificial as it can get. I'm going to, send, I'm going to start speaking the rest of our Sunday School lesson in a language that I have just made up. So that, that way, you understand... History is more complex. Bling blob chi do. Bob dooging doob doo. Ah choo the Thomas Cranmer. Boggy 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 Martin. That's ridiculous, right? And yet, we find ourselves saying, if I could create an artificial sense of majesty and distance, I will have a better sense of God. You go, no. You've created an artificial sense of God. And that's dangerous. So, when he did this, Cranmer, just by doing this, even though, even though the, the, if you read the Book of Common Prayer, any of you have ever looked at it, there's some really, really good stuff in there. But it's very Catholic in its own way, but the mere fact that he's writing it in English, and that he's tweaked some of it, that it's very Britonized, is itself moving the church away from Catholicism. Just the mere fact that he did this, saying, we kind of need our own liturgy. It's kind of huge. So it has morning and evening prayers. It has wedding ceremonies. It has baptism ceremonies. It has weekly Bible readings. It's trying to get everybody on the same page. Nothing seditious in and of itself in the content, but its existence is changing things. Now, what's interesting is 1549, just brought Bootser to England. 1549, published Book of Common Prayer. First thing he does, he says, Martin, would you, would you read this? I've been working on this. Now that you're here, and I just published it, 
Would you read this? Give me your input. I want you to critique it. And, and so three years later, Cranmer publishes another version using Martin Bootser's suggestions that changes things. For instance, Martin's like, let's get rid of some of these Catholic terms. Let's get rid of words like the mass and altar. Why? Is that just being snarky so that we don't feel Catholic? Why, why get rid of those terms, terms like that? Okay. Okay. It's the same thing as with the Bible that those guys didn't want to read. Because uh, they, I'm sure Bootser is likewise thinking, well, let's take a more neutral term. Mm -hmm. It just means what it means as opposed to this Catholic term that means the Catholic way of doing this thinking about this. Right. He's not necessarily saying I must change. Well, he's a little bit saying this, but he's not necessarily saying I, I must change the way you look at this as much as I want to stop influencing you in this direction from the way you look at it. The word mass just comes from the Latin word missa, from which we get the English words missive or dismissal, something that's sent out. And so it's just from when the priest sends people away, which is kind of interesting when you think about it, that you, you, you named your service, go away now. You know, <laughs> says something about the way they're looking at it. But anyway, but it came to me any service where the priest gives a specific dismissal, where he says, now go, now that you have taken communion, now that you have done all this, go with God and things, because you can take God with you. The Mass, specifically, was a time when the priest re-sacrifices Christ on the congregation's behalf. You have taken Christ's sacrifice into you. Can you go to a, a Bible study? Sure, it's not a Mass. Can you... Can you go to a, a, a little church meeting where you sing some songs? Or, yes, it's cool, but it's not a Mass. It's not a Mass unless you do the Eucharist, unless you do communion, unless you take the... Why is that such a huge deal? So it's huge for the church to have a control factor. Why is it huge to the individual Christian to be able to go to Mass? Then? Yeah. How else are you going to have God with you? The Bible talks about you have God inside of you, right? God dwells inside of you. How does he get there? The only way God can get there is if you eat and drink him. That will not drink, because only the priest can do that. You've got to eat it on a regular basis, right? That's what they're saying. That's what this is based on. You can't keep God in you unless you keep taking God into you. And the only way you can do that is to eat him in, in communion. So the worst thing... Yeah. Veronica, you're absolutely right. This is so not the way we think, is it? No. Um, and so I'm not trying to make fun of them. I'm saying this is the way they think. And it's very alien to the way that we understand Scripture. But you can see why excommunication... You can no longer take communion. You don't get to go to Mass. It's huge. Because it means you don't get to have God with you anymore. Because you don't get to take communion with a priest. So, to them, this is crucial. And so Mass is a big deal. And you re-sacrifice Christ on an altar. We don't have an altar in our, in our church. 
we have a communion table up front, but an altar is specifically a place where you make a sacrifice. I'm not a priest. I don't make sacrifices on your behalf to God. I don't stand up there and sacrifice a goat, and I don't stand up there and sacrifice Jesus. From the communion table, I give you a family meal where we remember Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead at communion. But it's not an altar. Now, many of us at one point or another, it's, it's been called an altar so many times, we can slip and call it an altar. But even when I accidentally slip and call it an altar, I mean in communion table. I don't mean I'm sacrificing Christ. But you can see where Martin would go, I don't, I don't want to use mass. That means something to you that is unhealthy. And I don't want to use the word altar because we're not re-sacrificing Christ. Let's actually stop and use theology about even the language that we're using about the, about the church services we have. I'm a, I'm a big fan of words mean stuff. I'm a big fan of your doctrine should actually affect how you do things and why you do things. He also said, you know, can we remove the, uh, the, the requirement for the priests to wear the full priestly vestments? When we look at this, we go, we go rose. You know, it's like five layers of specific vestments that you have to wear here in a specific order, and everything means something. And that's just the lowest level priest. Bishops have to wear additional things, and the popes have to wear additional things out of that. And he's like, you know, that can have a sense of tradition, and that can be healthy, but it's become, you can't do it unless you're wearing all these things that the Bible never talks about. You can't be a priest if you're not wearing this. I mean, do you even know what this sash is specifically? There's a sash underneath this thingy. Do, do you know what that means and exactly why that's there? Do you know why it has tassels on the bottom? Do you know why it's wearing a poncho over it? Do you even know what these are called? Now, none of those are bad things. By the way, some of those are really interesting traditions that have a lot of meaning. But does it mean that you can't be a priest, you can't minister, you can't have a church service unless you wear your special golden poncho and you wear the thing and it's got tassels and it's made of this and it's this color on this time and it's not that color on it? It can mean stuff, but it can also mean that you're focusing so much on the hoop jumping, you're forgetting the worship in the first place. If you ever want to, do what you're... I'm not going to take time right now. Do a little study on, on, on why the priests wore what they wore. There's some really interesting stuff in there. I'm not trying to pick on them for doing it, but it's the requirement to do it, as if that's the important thing that the Bootser's going. Can we, can we rethink that a little bit? And by the way, yeah, you notice, it looks far more medieval than it does 16th century, doesn't it? I don't know, maybe your eye doesn't look at it like that. But they, in the 16th century, they're not wearing a lot of long gowns like this anymore. You're seeing a lot of breeches and stuff, right? Pants. Guys are wearing pants now, right? This is not pants. So why is he dressed like this? Why is this more medieval? Yeah, okay. It's more it's more different. Okay, what else? I heard some start yeah, it started before that though, and then some of these things start before that too. Anybody else? You saw that a nod back to some of the Hebrew priests. Too. I mean, well, I like especially with the tassels. Yeah. Of the, yeah. Yep, it is a nod back. Although, with a it's, a it's a it's a grumpy nod. It's an amazing nod. They're like, well, we're not Jews. You know, it's like, no, yeah, just, yeah, but you're trying to be. Yeah. 
trying to do. We even know the Pope's mitre was based on the, on the, on the, uh, the turban of the, of the Hebrew priest. Well, think about it. The Catholic Church has recently deemed all innovation as inherently bad. Any innovation is bad because the reformers are trying to innovate. If you try to innovate, if you try to bring something new, that means whatever we were doing a year ago wasn't perfect. So you're telling the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, you're telling the Church, the Bride of Christ, they're not perfect enough for you. Innovation is inherently bad. It is bad to add an organ to a church building. That is an, that is an intrusion of technology into the sanctuary. There were a lot of debates in the 16th, 17th century about why it's wrong to bring an organ into a church building. Just like we, you know, people debate today, it's wrong to use PowerPoint. It's an intrusion of the technology into the sanctuary. Right. Just like pipe organs originally were. Of course, then, in the 20th century, you had people going, it's wrong to remove organs from the church building because it's an, you're putting in a, uh, a keyboard, and that's an intrusion of the technology of the sanctuary. Pick your battle. We all love to have something to grump about. But they are like, oh, all innovation is inherently bad. So even innovation in clerical dress is inherently bad. We're going to stop in the Middle Ages. Look sometime with this kind of eye. You get used to, well, that's very Catholic. Stop. Forget Catholic for a second. Watch the Pope. Watch you know, bishops and things. And think, instead of Catholic, think medieval. How much of architecture, how much of language, how much of uh, style of dress, how much of formality of service, how much of what they do even leading up to the service, how they address the Pope, it's all medieval. It's trying consciously to be medieval. Or at least stop, even down to how do we want our Swiss guard to dress? It's like, shoo, 1500 and we're done, right? Example of that today is look at our graduations from college. Uh, we still have the robes, and the professors still wear their hoods, and that's sacred. It is. And again, I, 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 it meant a lot to me to be able to wear the robes when I would get my, my, my degrees. I get that. But it is interesting that when we think, want to do this up, want to get formal, we say, now formal you mean, I mean a, a tux, like with a collar and a bow tie, you know, like the 19th century, you know, with tails, like nobody wears unless they're wearing a tux and are playing piano now, right? <laughs> or, if we say, no, 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 more formal than tails, it's a formal ceremony, you go, oh, 1500, you know, it's like, yeah, got to wear the robes, even the professor's got this, like, slouchy hat thing going, you go, unless, unless you're trying to look like an artist in a movie somewhere, that's basically just a renaissance. You do not wear the slouchy hat on a regular basis. Every time I make art. Every time I make art. <laughs> yes? Well, I, this is a different question. Like, if I watch the thing that's British-based, mm -hmm. current, modern, and they're doing something in the courtroom, those guys are wearing their wigs, and I'm like, can you guys stop? <laughs> 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 but, but it's, How can you take anything seriously? Like okay, especially some of the wigs. If, if, if the wigs that only cover, like, the top half of the head, you go, I see your hair. <laughs> um, but, but we do the same thing with graduation. So before you pick, I, I agree, but before we too, pick too much on the, on the, on the Brits, 
we still do have this sense of if you're going to really formalize things, you got to go back 500 years. You got to you got to take a step back because that's where chunk. It really all. It is actually that, and you must wear a ring. You know, oh, um, but technically, even down to the ring. Okay, you, you we're joking about. It all points back to the Catholic Church deciding if you want to do it upright, if you're going to do majestic service, stop now. This, this is where history stops in terms of innovation. And so all the other stuff that we do echoes church services that stop here at 1500. Yeah? Um, I think that kind of happened again to the Protestants, though. Oh, yeah! Because, I mean, you have all these King James-only people that will... That was where some people could understand it. Yep. Like the Bible has a beautiful Bible from the mouth of God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the slouchy hat girl has spoken. Um, <laughs> but yeah, oh, well, that's what I was talking about with the, with the church service thing. I mean, yes, with the, with the organ and stuff, that was all Protestants fighting each other over that. So, so it's not a Catholic thing. Go ahead. And sometimes they do. And sometimes I wear a sweater. And sometimes whatever. Well, I think there's a difference in saying that we're stuck 500 years ago or that we want to be respectful yep. of how we dress when we come to church, too, though. Good. Uh, this is where I was going to, because we're, we're going off on this more than I had originally intended to, so I want to come back to this. Is None of what we've just talked about is inherently bad. I mean, like I said, I, it, mean, it meant a lot to me to to, uh, to wear the robes when I, when I got my degrees. Um, uh, we we uh, when I got married, I wore a tux. I mean, to stop and say this is important, and so I want to remind myself that I'm taking this seriously. I want to do different actions. Even I want to do different rituals. I want to do different liturgies. Even if that liturgy is I want to put on a tie or I want to dress up nicely. I want to show professionalism. I want to whatever. There's nothing inherently wrong at all with saying. I want to do this up slightly differently. Now, it can get unhealthy when you start thinking that is the way you do this, and if you don't do it that way, something must be wrong. I think that's what Michael's getting at. It's not that it's wrong to wear a tie to church, but that if you go, well, I can't listen to him, he's not wearing a tie, that's going to be problematic. It can become wrong. I'm going to walk on carefully. Listen to me carefully, because I need to be very careful about how I say this. To pray to the Lord, if you want to stop and say, I want to be very careful about what I'm saying, I want to be very uh, eloquent with the Lord, I want to think through what I'm saying, and I, and I want this to be something meaningful, and you want to take higher language than you normally would spend in, a, in, in, in conversation with people, that is meaningful, that is good. It can be really, really solid. When people cannot use contractions when they pray to the Lord, because... You can't converse with the Lord like you converse with a human being. That becomes problematic. To infuse that with something special, great. To say, I'm going to make it something artificially separate from me because I must use these and thous when I speak to God. My dad uses these and thous when he prays because he grew up doing that and because he understands this is a way of showing God very unusual respect. 
when Dad talks about Thou when he prays, it means something to me. I get misty-eyed. There are some people that cannot pray without using these nouns because to them, to pray to God must be kept high, stilted, separate, unusual, artificial. That's unhealthy. Okay? So all I'm saying is, is a lot of that is pointing back, all I was really getting at with all this, is that sense of formality means robes or, or slouchy hats or whatever, really comes from the Catholic Church going, shkunk, I'm putting my flag down here in 1500 A.D. It all ends here. Anything after this, okay, we'll build a mobile, but that's about it. We still do puffs of smoke to tell you that we have picked a pope. You know, it's like, really? Do I have a cell plan in, in the Vatican City? Seriously, all that sense of formalism is robes and high language and speaking in ways that aren't the common way of speaking. All that comes from this moment in history. So I'm talking about this far more than I expected this slide to last. And yet, it's really huge that we understand why we do the things that we do now. And this moment is a huge pivot point. Or lack of pivot point, however you want to look at that. But, sure knock yourself out, what? One of the first sermons, I don't know, relatively early on that I was here, um, to, as I was going through First Peter and not judging people, I wore uh, a, a jeans and a, I, I, someone in Las Vegas loves me t-shirt and a hat uh, when I was preaching. And it was interesting how many people afterwards were like, I really couldn't hear you um, because I couldn't get past how you were dressed. You know, interesting. I, ironically... One of the biggest things was was not the jeans, wasn't the t-shirt, it was that hat. And even I had to take the hat off after all. I, I can't, I can't. My grandmother would be slapping my face if I'm wearing a hat inside. Um, but 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 it is interesting because we sit there and we go, but on a deep level, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be not that. You can dress that way for a hockey game, but it's wrong to dress that way to to worship God. If it's disrespectful inherently. Lack of respect for God? Yes. Inherently, I don't think God goes, I hate denim. <laughs> he also, because I didn't want it to stay on that line, uh, he also added more memorial aspects of communion to the communion service. Like, instead of focusing on transubstantiation and the whole re-sacrificing Christ, can we focus on the fact that we're remembering something? It's, it's something that's supposed to be pointing back to what Christ has already done. That's what all the verbiage in Scripture is about. Um, so in general, the service shifted from focusing on a priest doing actions on behalf of a congregation to a priest leading the congregation in participating in Christ's actions on their behalf. That's, that's a big thing. Now again, I'm not going to say that suddenly the Church of England looked like a Baptist service. No. But there's a difference. There's a difference between saying, you go to the service so that the priest does incantations for you. 
in voodoo language that you don't understand with gestures that you don't know what they mean dressed in clothes that you would never wear. Instead, it's, I'm going to use language you do understand. I may or may not dress in ways that you do. And I'm going to encourage you to participate in remembering what Christ has done for you. Kind of big. Do you see the, the difference in that? For good or for ill, and I'm not going to say we're perfect here, but this is part of why we try very hard in our service to be interactive. Multiple places in our service to say, we're praying together, we're singing together, we're interacting together. I may even ask you questions in the sermon. I want you guys to be involved. It's not me or Vanessa or whomever doing stuff for you. It's us trying to help you, to help as prompters to help all of us interact. All right. I need to keep moving on. Because that was all just 1549. I wasn't planning to spend that much time on 1549. 1552. Moritz of Saxony finally defeats Carlos V. Germany wins its, its uh, religious independence from the Catholic Church once and for all. That's big. 1552, big year. If you'll remember, King Francis I of France really hated Carlos, right? Hated him so much that he did political alignments with the Muslim Turks. It's like, yeah, I'm a French Catholic king, and I'm going to be friends with the Muslims against the Roman Empire, the Holy Catholic Roman Empire. His son, Henri II, did a lot the same thing. But not with the Turks. Instead, it was with the German Protestants. He's like, wait, Carlos, you hate the German Protestants? I like them. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So I'm going to support Moritz of Saxony. I'm going to give him money. I'm going to give him troops. I'm going to help him beat the snot out of Carlos V. Which is interesting because at the same time, he's persecuting Protestants in France. Henri is kicking French Protestants at the time that he's supporting German Protestants. Back in 1542, his father had slaughtered thousands of Waldensians. You remember those guys? Peter Waldo? These guys? Good? White hats? Yeah. Thousands of them get slaughtered in the city of Merondol and thousands, or dozens of, of, of uh, surrounding villages. Since the 1530s, there was a movement known as the Huguenots, who were the French followers of Jean Calvin. They had this funky little symbol. Every part of this symbol means something. You ever want to kill a good half an hour of your life, Google Huguenot cross and what it symbolizes. It's fascinating, actually. It's the most overwrought logo I've ever seen in my life. But I kind of like it. Anyway, but this movement of Huguenots had been growing in France, and by the mid-16th century, there's over a thousand churches of Huguenots in France, which is great. That's cool. So Henri is killing Huguenots by the thousands. He's like, i got to get rid of these guys. By 1560, there's an actual full-fledged civil war in France against the Huguenots. Some of the worst, most foul atrocities were committed by both sides. We'll have to talk about that when the 1560s come along. But it's nasty, nasty French wars of uh, religious independence. So Henri hates Protestants. But that's in France, right? And these are talking about Protestants in Germany. So I can fight Protestants at home while I support Protestants abroad. Because I don't care. Not really. I'm a good Catholic because that's the way I define myself. I'm a good Catholic because I grew up with that. I'm a good Catholic because... Uh, the Catholic Church supports my, my reign, I'm a good Catholic because whatever. I'm not a good Catholic because I care about the theology. 
don't care about any of this. My dad supported the Muslims, for crying out loud. I don't care. So anyway, you've got Henri's funds, Henri's troops, and so Moritz is able to actually force Carlos to retreat into Italy. <gasps> the Holy Roman Empire has to move closer to Rome. <laughs> Go figure. And Henri is able to take some German region called the Lorraine into France. The Lorraine was Germanic, but nobody ever thinks of quiche Lorraine and goes, yes, German food, right? No, we think of this as France because of Henri, right? Anyway, um, so Carlos was forced to rescind that Augsburg interim and decree something called the Peace of Passau, which guaranteed full religious freedom for the Lutherans of Germany in perpetuity and released poor Johann Friedrich, who'd been sitting there going, I lost, right? So, kind of big. And then later, three years later, they finally had organized something called the Peace of Augsburg. I can't hardly emphasize the Peace of Augsburg enough. As much as I've emphasized everything, this is another thing that's kind of huge at this moment. The peace established a precedent that changed Europe. Quius regio, eus religio. Whose realm? His religion. Who's ever king, that's the religion of his kingdom. If he's Catholic, he's Catholic. And everybody in the Catholic is Catholic. Everything in his kingdom is Catholic. If he's Lutheran, he's Lutheran. Everybody in his kingdom is Lutheran. Whatever religion the king is, that's the state religion of his kingdom. Because this simplifies things, right? No more pointy, pointy things being shoved at one another. The king changes his religion. The country changes its religion, and everybody in it. So, Henry VIII in England was Catholic. No, now I'm Church of England, which is basically English Catholic. Edward VI is Church of England, Cranmer Bootser Church of England. Very different kind of Church of England. So, within the span of a couple of decades, you go from, apparently we're Catholic, apparently we're not Catholic, apparently we're really not Catholic. I don't know. That's right. Guess we're back. That's right. Uh, what are we this week? I don't know. I went to church. He's speaking Latin, so I guess we're Catholic. You know? No, I went to church. He's speaking English. I think we're Church of England now. Yeah. But that's the thing: is what, whatever happens, everybody in the. Nope. I said this changes Europe. How do you think this changed things in general? Beyond just, I mean, we're being facetious how we're describing it, but it's not entirely far from how the, your local butcher thinks about religion. How does this change things on a national level? How does this change things on a street level, do you think? Yeah, why should you care? I mean, there's a, there's a huge war going on eventually uh, um, in, in, uh, in Germany. Um, there's a plague. The German Lutherans are fighting the, 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 the Catholics. Everybody's hiring mercenaries, and the German Lutherans are hiring Catholic mercenaries. The Catholics are hiring Lutheran mercenaries. You don't care, the average person doesn't care about religion because they believe it. They care about religion because it helps define them as a people group. Okay, what else? Well, you develop the divine right of kings because what the king has is the authority, and so therefore they can do more, even in the eyes of the people, mm -hmm. or they have the authority. And that takes, as you can tell, very different directions and things. So like in England, um, well, I'll back up. In Germany, yes, you get this divine right of kings, but 
Germany is very fragmented and it's very Protestant. So it's very, well, what do you think should happen? It's, it's a, a funky kind of democracy in, in some ways. In England, you're moving much clearer toward democracy, toward the people deciding for themselves what scripture is, and eventually you're going to get people like Cromwell coming in going, Catholicism stinks! Let's do some seriously nasty things to Catholics. But of course, by the time we get to that point, you're probably going to understand why Cromwell took such a strong view as he did. Um, in France, you can see why the king's like, well, we need to hold on to our Catholicism. Divine right of kings. I can do anything I stinking want. I can paint myself gold, call myself the Sun King, tell you you have to refer to me as Apollo, and sleep with anybody I want, because Jesus loves me and only me, because I said so. Very different in different countries on a, on a national level. What about street level? Anything else? I mean, Jenny already talked a little bit. What else do you think? How would this... Possible. I can't Oh, yeah. And countries are thinking of themselves as extremely religious. But a religion without necessarily individual faith. You were born in Sweden. Therefore, you are part of the Church of Sweden. And we're very religious about it. Therefore, I'm, I'm a good Christian. Yeah. Now, I go to church every Sunday because I have to. Therefore, I'm a good Christian. I, I don't need to believe any of this. I just do this stuff. As long as I was born in Sweden, I'm a Christian because there's the Church of Sweden, and it's a lot better than the Church of Germany. What with the fact we speak Swedish? Yeah. It's, it's nationalism. It's, it's, it's jingoism. It's not Christianity. Now, here's the sticky thing. In what ways has this moment in history still playing itself out now in America, in American churches, even amongst evangelical Protestant churches? In what ways does this echo? Our identity is our denomination. I mean, uh, that's one reason why evangelical or Bible churches, I think, were, they were trying to move away from that. But yeah, I think that happens a lot. And what's funny is, um, phenomenal respect for the evangelical movement that, that was built up, especially in like the 50s and 60s, and this movement of saying, can we get past denominationalism and see ourselves all as Bible-believing evangelicals? Can we get back to, I mean, very reform movement, isn't it? Can we just get back to the Bible and say, we're evangelicals, we want to preach the Word of God, we want to share Christ's life? You know, today, 50, 60 years later, you go, evangelical, you Oh, that's a very definite movement. It's very conservative, and you have to believe this. And you're not a good evangelical because you don't believe what I believe about this. I mean, we agree on abortion, we agree on homosexuality, but I don't. I don't like your immigration reform. That you just go. So your let's get past denominationalism, and you have to agree with everything I agree with. And let's get back to the Bible movement has become a you have to agree with everything I I believe movement. We just naturally do this, and and, and again. I respect evangelicals. I'm happy to call myself an evangelical. It's just, we, we just slide into this sort of thing. All right, what else? What else? How else does this echo? Oh, I mean, I think there's a backlash to this now, but for a long time, it was a Christian. I mean, yeah. you know, personal relationship aside, at least you're culturally Christian. Yeah. I was born in the United States. Therefore, I'm essentially a Christian. It's not like I'm Buddhist. 
Buddhists in America. They're in Asian countries, right? It's <laughs> Asia, isn't it? I don't know. I'm not Muslim. There's no Muslims in America. I'm amazed at how many people still believe Obama's a Muslim, even though he's like, um, no. Uh, go to a Christian church. I call myself a Muslim, whatever. But beyond that, how many people are like, you know, you got a Muslim in the White House. Really? This is the argument we had 50 years ago about you get a Catholic in the White House with JFK. There are Muslims in the United States that get to be here, and they get to be president. It doesn't mean anything. Get over it. But we assume, oh, you can't be a Muslim and be a president in the United States. Oh, oh, thank you. You can't let Romney get elected. What would it be run? Utah will run the country. When Chicago should run the country. Um, um, but that's the thing where you sit there and you go, we still, we still tend to think, I was born in America, therefore I'm Judeo-Christian. Okay, what else? We have it. I'm sure there's a National Enquirer article that will inform you that Abraham Lincoln was actually Jewish. Well, I still think that there's a lot where we sit there and go, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just do church. Do church. That's You don't have to believe it. Don't, didn't we just have a whole conversation a couple weeks ago about enthusiasm where you go, yeah, you're, you're too enthusiastic. You keep talking about Jesus. Be a Christian. Just don't, you know, overtly be one. Yeah. There's a lot of blending of Bible and flag. Okay. You know, there's a lot of, like, um, it's not that because you're an American, you're Christian, but also because you're a Christian, you have to support America and be really patriotic and it's introduced to the army. And it's, it's kind of goes both ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, again, it's I need to clarify. identity as American. We're patriotic. And I need to clarify, patriotism is not bad. It's a good thing. Support your country. Yes, there's biblical precedent for it. Hey, support your country. Yeah, that's good. So much of what we're talking about here is like, no, there's nothing wrong inherently with this. But does this become your religion? Does this begin to eclipse your religion? Um, patriotism is very good. Yes. Remember Memorial Day. Remember all those people that have fought and died for your freedom so that you can believe what you... Yes, all that's good. But to the degree to which not uh, supporting your country, praying for your leaders, being a, a good citizen where you're at is biblical, to the degree to which nationalism is part of your Christianity and it becomes Christianism, probably not super healthy. Yeah? It tends to become more like in Germany where, you know, because you're German, and, I mean, Hitler's German. Hitler's German, the, the yeah. narrow band of German, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, if you're German, I think there's a lot of churches in America that still act like that. And, you know, whatever our military does, or whatever the police do, or whatever the governor does, you got to support this. Well, and, and, and to be fair, it can go the other way. There's other people who sit there and go, if you're a Christian, you're going to be part of this um, countercultural political movement. Or you're going to be, this, we, we interact and interweave culturalism with our theology a lot. You can argue that a lot of that has is echoes from this kind of moment as well. But 
provisions are being made at this time that citizens can can move out of their kingdom and into another kingdom, which is kind of a new thing. If you say, "Well, I don't, I don't want to become a Lutheran," you go, "Oh, you move to another Catholic city. Your prince is is, is Lutheran now." And knights don't have to convert. You can be a Lutheran knight serving a Catholic king or vice versa. Or you just have to promise to serve the king. You have to swear fealty to the king and to his church. You don't have to believe it. You're a good fighter. Stay here. But now you are fighting a religious war against your own church. But you're getting paid to do it, so it's okay. So if, you're, if your prince is Lutheran and you're Catholic and the prince goes, I'll pay you money if you still kill Catholics for me and say, Luther, Luther! And you go, okay, well, I'm still going to worship in Latin. Go, yeah, that's fine. You can just say Luther, Lutherus. I don't care how you say it. Just, it's just a very weird time in history. So does that mean persecution didn't die down? After oh, no. Why would it? Actually, they had all sorts of problems because of this because they didn't really word it carefully. And so um, they, 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 later on, different... Different kings, Fernando, uh, the later. Well, anyway, they did all sorts of additions to this to try to fix it, and every time they did, it just kept getting weirder and weirder and more and more convoluted with things. But yeah, no, the persecution didn't die down; it just shifted. Ironically, what it did is more than anything else. Instead of creating more religious freedom, it created more people believing less. You just do whatever your king does, whatever. Just go along with the flow. So. By the way, I'm glad I reminded myself of this. This is originally a declaration regarding Lutherans. We're not talking about Protestants versus Catholics. We're talking about Lutherans versus Catholics. If you're a Calvinist, if you're a Mennonite, you're a heretic. Still kill you. Right? You don't, you don't, your church doesn't, but the Lutherans are a big enough group and they've got pointy sticks. They get to be Lutherans. You Calvinists, you're way over there in France and you don't have enough pointy sticks. You don't get to be Calvinists, and you Mennonites say no pointy sticks at all. You totally don't get to be Mennonites. So, 1553, Michael Sabritas is executed. Guy, actually, his name is Miguel because he's in Spain. But anyway, uh, he's trained as a physician. Wrote on especially like pulmonary things. I think there's even still a pulmonary technique named after him. But his passion was scripture, and he said, you know, the word Trinity is never in the Bible. It's never explicitly discussed in the Bible. Never placed the Bible where they say, God is three in one. He's this, this, this. Never goes into that. That's just an infusion of Greek classical philosophy into Christianity. That's a bad thing. So he says, no, nope, no. Nope. Just like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Good Mormon will tell you, the word Trinity is not in your Bible. And they're right. It is. The first person to talk about Trinity is actually Tertullian back in the, uh, what, third century. So um, he says, nope. The divine Logos, the Word of God, became an infant Jesus, was the avatar of God here on earth. But it's not a separate entity. Um, forget all that. Was the Son pre-existing with the Father? Is the Son co-equal with the Father? He is the Father. It's, it, there's no Son and Father. It's just the eternal God existing in different modes at different times, kind of like Sibelius talked about in the 3rd century. Different modes, different times, same God. Just one God. Not three gods. One God. So, don't think of him as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Just think of him as God. And so he formed what was called a Unitarian Church. So the Unitarian Church points itself back to Miguel here, Michael Servetus. One God. Alright. He gets arrested by the Catholics, as you might imagine. Strangely, they don't like it. He's a heretic. In part because Jean Calvin reads his stuff 
and sends letters to the Catholic Church arguing with his good, clear, biblical, legal mind why Servetus should be executed. Because he's preaching heresy. When Calvin is writing the Catholic Church, that should tell you something. So Servetus escapes prison. And on his way out, stopped by Geneva. Because he wants to hear Calvin preach. Because he has tremendous respect for Calvin. What do you think happens? Calvin arrests him. He's like, well, you heretic. And he presides over his trial. Now, Calvin was getting kind of old here. So whether he was physically sitting at the trial as often, we don't really know how much he was involved. But he did uh, actively and publicly debate Servetus several times. Because we have several times where Servetus called him. Uh, he called him called Calvin Simon Magus. He called him a tool of Satan. He called him all sorts of different things. So Servetus, arguably, in that Martin Luther, going to call you naughty names, uh, camp. Servetus was denied an attorney. He requested an attorney to help him plead his case. But the Geneva Council said, quote, not one jot of a bad innocence which requires an attorney, unquote, can be found in your case. You don't look innocent, therefore you don't get an attorney. Realize this whole concept of innocent until proven guilty, that's a Scottish Presbyterian minister from the 18th century idea. This, no, this is still pre-innocent until proven guilty. You're guilty until proven innocent. You're so guilty, we're totally going to prove you guilty. We don't even, you don't even need an attorney. So, he's tried and convicted by the Calvinists for being a Unitarian, which he was, and for being against infant baptism, which he was. Um, they also argued that he was a bachelor and he's an old guy, which means he was probably gay, which he vehemently denied, and it's a silly thing to, to bring up. Under, you're already going to kill him. I don't know why you're, you're doing this, but anyway. Um, so, he was sentenced to be burned at the stake. Now, Calvin said, that's just so ironically, Calvin comes off smelling like a rose in some respects compared to a lot of the people. He's like, can we please just be happy? Let's be nice. Different world, okay? You know, now do you think he's still wanting him to be beheaded? He's mean. You go, oh, no, no, no. It's a lot of pain. I would much rather. I, I think, you know, I'd love to hear the Calvin just sitting in the background going, I say we let him go. You know, but, um, <laughs> but Calvin's like, no, behead him, behead him. So uh, his friend Guillaume Farrell, Calvin's friend, says, Calvin, you're a wimp. You know, you're being way too nice. You're being way too lenient on this guy. Stop that. We need to, we need to make an, 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 an example of him. Calvin himself did right. And, it's, and we got to clarify that he was all pro-killing uh, uh, heretics. He said, whoever shall maintain that it's wrong is done to heretics and blasphemers and punishing them makes himself an accomplice in the crime and as guilty as they are. There's no question here of man's authority. It is God who speaks. And it's clear... It is what, uh, what law he will have kept in his church. God speaks through us when we do this, and God says, kill him. So we're doing a good thing, but I just, I would have done this quicker. So Calvin's good? 1553, same year, Queen Mary I of England comes to power. Mary's mom is Catarina of Aragon, Spain, which is decidedly Catholic, right? She's the first wife of Henry VIII and the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor. Mary grew up as a good Catholic, and so Bloody Mary begins this persecution of Protestants under her rule. This is where we get the term Bloody Mary. We'll talk about that next time. Lucky fun history. But I want you to see how it flows into what's coming up. And you can see where Bloody Mary's persecution of Protestants 
is arguably still part of that counter-reformation that, that is going on. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for... I thank you for our church. I thank you for our church family and the desire that you've given this family in particular to love you well, to love one another well, and to base that love not just on warm fuzzies, not just on what I or she or he personally believes, but to try to base it on your word and to use your grace while speaking your truth in love. Father, I, I just I thank you for all the examples, good and bad, that go before us in history that have led us to trying to actively show that kind of love and grace and truth today. Help us to live that out. In Jesus' name, amen.